0: Hey everybody, welcome to Wonderful World of Renner Radio. Today we are talking about sacred objects, icons, desecrated objects, all the fun stuff. If you guys have any questions, comments, concerns, love letters, death Catholic threats, relics them in the comment section as, uh, as the video is live. It's going to be an exciting program. You guys stay tuned. You are watching The Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you. You may be asking yourself why, Josh, this doesn't look like your laundry room in your apartment. No, no, it doesn't look like that laundry room in my apartment where I usually film. This is actually studio number... Like two and a half, uh, here at Wellspring Church, I uh, called up Dustin. Uh, the most anointed pastor who has ever pastored at Wellspring Church. Uh, And I asked, (laughs) that's Michael's former church. I'm just messing around. I'm just (laughs) messing around. I called up Dustin and I said, hey, uh, uh, I need a space that has some consistent Wi-Fi because we've had some Wi-Fi problems. So he let me use this space. Uh, So if you guys want to help fix the Wi-Fi problems, there's a way that you can do that. You go to the link of the description and you can support the channel. We can afford real Wi-Fi. No, I'm just kidding. We we called out a technician. They're working on all that stuff. But you really can support the channel. There are links in the description to do that. You can give a one-time gift on PayPal or a reoccurring gift there on Patreon. And if you give on Patreon as low well as five bucks a month, you get access to extra content like our book club where we're going through the Screw Tape Letters. Uh, we've already gone through a couple of books. We went through A W Tozer's Knowledge of the Holy, and we've also gone through Kingdom of the Cults there online. Uh, and we continue to do book clubs like that, live Q and A's, those kinds of things. So if you want to uh, join in on those conversations, get access to extra. Extra content patreon is the place for you uh without further ado how you fellas doing are you guys uh you excited about today's program
1: i'm doing good over here i yeah. i'm i am excited because of the questions that are already arising are beards sacred objects that's mm. what i want to know that's what i want to know i'm kind of like in this in-between stage of am i growing a beard back or am i just going clean shaven i haven't really decided wait but this, wait Michael, the, the sacredness of it shut up <laughs> <laughs> I kill you <laughs> so uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm, exci- I'm excited about the show I- I'll tell you what I'm actually most excited about uh, this will dovetail in a different direction from last week um, the uh, Roman Catholic relics from the middle ages is going to be a fascinating portion of this discussion uh, Miller how are you doing over there in Denver Denver Colorado. Uh,
2: I am technically not in Denver they let me out uh, of the basement so I Whoa. got on a plane as soon as I could and flew out to Mississippi. I so found the late, most late interesting
1: wall in Mississippi. I did,
2: I did. I figured, you know, where is the worst place I could do this podcast, and I found it. Wow,
0: that's right He's wow. Good for you. Thank you, thank you for that, Miller. I, I did Just want to answer. I-, I wanted to answer Michael's question. Uh, this oh, is a oh that that's a piece of <laughs> bread. That is that is not how you answer that question. Uh, <laughs> that's that's from today's. Uh, today's thumbnail okay so here's this one okay this is uh this is the beard to holiness chart okay so you've got a little holy you got you got a pretty holy you got holy super holy right i have to read it on my my uh my ipad here in front of me pretty much a saint definitely a saint peak fallen human holiness right and then right under that second to theotokos only uh, and then way up here, right where the nose is, there's Michael Roundtree. So, just right above, <laughs> you know, right I'm, above a little holy.
1: I, I'm gonna go with like that guy doesn't have a wife, right? Probably. Like, she would have snipped that thing a long time ago
0: in his sleep, <laughs> like Delilah. I,
1: yes, <laughs> and he would instantly lose all of his holiness. That's I right. Don't know. So, um, yeah. So today's show, we we kind of, this is a part two, but not really a part two. It's a part two in the sense that we started a conversation about sacred objects. We talk about burning sacred objects. One thing I like to touch on this week is grinding things into powder. What you guys think of that? But but we talked about how this is actually an Old Testament and a New Testament pro, uh, principle uh, embedded both in the moral code, uh, the the moral code of, of Israel, the Old Testament, that would transcend and be part of the New Covenant as well, that so called sacred objects or things devoted to uh, false gods should be destroyed if they 're in our possession, uh, but then we see it played out in the book of acts and so we we talked about that, but this week we want to talk about uh, we want to talk about relics we want to talk a little bit I think about new age uh, icons. I know Josh was kind of really on on your mind to talk about. Uh, and uh, as well as scripturally, we're going to look into meat sacrificed to idols. How could it be that, like, uh, that you can eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols? At least in some circumstances, in First Corinthians. Uh, But you you need to destroy something else that's devoted to an idol. So we'll kind of explore that question. And uh, back to the Roman Catholic relics, I think at the same context. We'll talk about uh, Roman Catholic communion. So those are a a few things to get us started today. Uh, Joshy Josh, where do you think we should start out? I can't hear you, though. I think he's muted.
0: I did mute myself. I'm a professional. I know better— Um, you know, like we, like we said, we, we, in the last episode, we, we covered a bunch of, um, subjects when it comes to sacred objects. We talked about Christian sacred objects, like in the old Testament, we talked about the, the serpent that was, uh, that was on the staff that was raised up. People looked at it and they were healed and how that, that actual sacred object that was actually performing miracles actually took the place of idolatry. I think that's probably going to be important for our conversation into holy relics moving forward. Uh, We also talked about uh, some of the, the, the witchcraft kind of objects. So we have sacred objects that were used within the Jewish tradition, but we also had these kinds of desecrated objects that were sacred, but in pagan temples and for pagan worship, they were sacred to the pagans. So when we say sacred objects, we don't want you to be confused as if we're conflating the two things as somehow equal, but we're saying that there were objects used within the Jewish culture, in the Jewish tradition uh, that were sacred, but there were also those same kinds of sacred objects used in pagan worship uh, for pagan gods. So we we don't necessarily want to conflate those. So if you hear us using the same kind of phrase... We are talking about them in, in different ways, so so I I think we should probably start in First uh, Corinthians, Michael, and talk yeah. about meat offered up to idols. Because when we're we're kind of talking about these two different areas, this idea of Roman Catholic icons and iconography, people are saying, "Hey, you could accidentally be worshiping something that's inherently demonic." And I feel like maybe those verses will help us interpret some of this.
1: Yeah, yeah, so. Uh, first Corinthians. So the flow of argument, um, it's really chapters eight through ten are all gonna discuss the subject of idolatry. And it's real confusing because it seems kind of like Paul is saying two two different things. It seems like he's saying, You can eat meat sacrificed to idols, who cares? And then you can't eat meat sacrificed to idols, that's idolatry, and God killed a bunch of Israelites for that. So it's kind of like what what exactly is happening? So uh the the way the argument flows is, uh, is he's going to essentially say there are times when it's permissible to eat, uh, eat meat sacrificed to idols. He'll say for instance, uh, and and what it's really going to boil down to is context matters. So if you're eating meat sold in the meat market, you can eat without raising any questions because we, Hey, we know an idol is nothing and pretty much all meat was, would have been sacrificed to idols. And it's not like Paul would condemn them to vegetarianism. What is this Eden? So, um, actually Eden sounds pretty nice, doesn't it? But, uh, first Corinthians eight, you guys are supposed to laugh. I don't know, Josh Miller, y'all still there. Are y'all on air? I was muted. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry.
0: (laughs) Oh, I, I for sure laughed. Well, I I muted myself. I, I for sure laughed. It was a, I slappers. just
1: I assume that when people don't laugh at my jokes, they must be muted. The same in real life, too. So yeah, that, That's um, what you tell yourself when during you, your sermons, like right? <laughs> that's, that's what I do. It's like live and I'm in front of them. I'm like, they must be muted. So, <laughs> anyway. Uh, so, marketplace meat is permissible. But then there's even a caveat there where it's like if, if somebody raises a question about it, like, oh, are you going to eat that even though it's sacrificed to an idol and they're clearly – Against that, that that there is a context where he's saying, hey, don't destroy the weaker brother because you're just kind of like trampling all over his faith beca- on account of your freedom. You know, he'll say this in Romans 14, uh, the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking, but about the kingdom of, but about the kingdom and joy and the Holy Spirit, something like that. Uh, and so there's a caveat where you can't eat in the meat market. That is, if it's going to destroy a weaker brother's faith and the principle of love prevails, there's a caveat where you can eat meat sold in the meat market, and that is that if you just if you just eat it and no one raises any any questions about it, it's not going to destroy anyone's faith. But then you get to first in chapter nine. He's going to go on a little bit of a diatribe about his freedom of an, as an apostle and how he lays it down. The overriding argument is just like, hey guys, it's not about what can I get away with? It's about how can I love God? It's like, you know, when I was a youth pastor and teenagers would always be like, how far can I go with a girl? And is it okay to smoke pot? And you know, these kind of things. I'm like, you're literally just trying to see like, how much can I get away with rather than how can I flee from idolatry, flee from sin and show love, show the love of Christ. So Paul's making a similar argument. Like you guys are asking the wrong questions. Uh, it's it's not about how much freedom can I exercise, but in what ways am I going to lay down my freedom for the sake of the gospel? And so then we get to chapter ten, and Paul's going to say he's describing a different context—not meat sold in the meat market. He's talking about meat that uh, that's actually in an idol's temple, and he's saying you can't just go into an idol's temple and participate in uh, just in their idolatrous feast and act like that's okay. is not a participation in the altar of demons. What does he say? It, uh, gosh, I it, it's not a, a, par- a participation in the altar of these false gods, a participation in demons. It's something like that in First Corinthians chapter 10. And and the whole point that he's making there is like, now you change the environment. This isn't just out in the open air. This is actually your you are stepping into an act of pagan worship and eating as part of that, pretending that, well, it doesn't bother me because I don't believe these idols are real. And he's saying, no, you actually are participating in that idol. And so, guys, the question I want to ask you, first of all, if you have any comments on any of, any of that that I just said, uh, but but two, how can we say that idolatrous objects need to be destroyed per the Old Testament? Uh, that they need to be maybe burned, maybe ground in the powder, or at least thrown in a dumpster somewhere. Um, how can we say that idolatrous objects need to be destroyed, on one hand, and then on the other hand, that, you know what, maybe in some circumstances it's okay to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols? What gives here? What do you guys think?
0: So I've got some thoughts. Uh, Miller, do you want to take a stab at it first, though?
2: I mean, I don't— I. I have some personal convictions, but I don't have any like super strong theological thoughts behind it. Like I would tell you this, I won't eat meat sacrificed to idols, uh, knowingly. Um, I'm not worried if I accidentally ate something that had been sacrificed to an idol and I was unaware of it, but I probably like, I wouldn't eat, um, halal food if I know that it's, it's dedicated to Allah. I'm not going to participate in it. Um. But I, I still, am kind of uncertain. Jury's out for me on this. What about what about kosher
0: kind of food, medicine. Miller? Like if a if a blessed Jewish by a rabbi, if a Jewish rabbi came in and blessed it, would you eat it?
2: Uh, I don't have a problem with kosher. <laughs> but this is a, this is a funny thing.
0: thing. I had a. a no, I can't tell that story. Never mind. Uh, uh, anyway, the the my commentary on uh 1 Corinthians 8 and 1 Corinthians 10, I think is is basically the exact same. I think I think Paul's being consistent across the board. Um he's wanting us to avoid the the approach of syncretizing our faith with pagan faith. And one is for the person who's viewing, right? If you're eating this and you don't know. You aren't personally searing your own conscience by introducing other religious practices into your Christian faith, right? So you're not searing your conscience. But if the other person knows it's been offered up to an idol, you could be searing their conscience. So in both accounts, it seems as if he's trying to avoid syncretism. In First Corinthians chapter eight, it's for the person watching. Oh, you're practicing, you know, Muslim. You're a practicing pagan like I am, and and he's like, no, no, no. I, I would never eat food knowingly it was offered up to an idol especially if there was an unbeliever present who who knew that that food was offered up to an idol and then the same thing to be said in a temple you're actually practicing that religion so it's the reason that I tell Christians you should not practice yoga because you are knowingly performing specific movements that are retelling a story of worship of a false god right do stretches there's nothing wrong with stretching but the specific movements and the specific order Done by yogis is telling the story of worship of a false god. So, anyway, all that to say that we should not knowingly be practicing other religions. Right. Does that does that seem fair?
1: Yeah, for sure. And I want to touch on this question by David McGuire. He says, "What about meat sacrifice to Allah?" And you touched on that, Miller, a second ago. And from a pers- from your perspective, uh, he says, "Is this considered meat sacrifice to idols?" So, Miller, I would answer a little differently than you. If so, I mean, now, no one's sacrificing meat to Allah but they or, or food to Allah, um, but they, they would maybe, you know, bless the dedicated. food in Allah's name, you know, that kind of thing. And so um, I think what I would say is I, I wouldn't have a problem eating food that someone else had dedicated to Allah because I myself would dedicate it to Yahweh, the one true God. And um, and I think that this would fit into the uh, the First Corinthians eight category, where you know meat sacrificed to an idol, well, an idol is nothing. Uh, you you can have freedom to eat. Where what I wouldn't do would be like if they were holding some sort of holy feast, and uh, and I was to participate in this holy worshipful feast alongside them and eat this meat dedicated to Allah, everyone's praying to Allah and blessing the food in Allah's name and eating the the meat at the same time, you know, something like that, maybe Ramadan or whatever. I wouldn't do that with them. I wouldn't, because I think that fits into 1 Corinthians 10 category. Uh, but if I was just like, let's say that I... Um, you know, had some Muslim friends over or something, or, or maybe went to a Muslim's house. Uh, I I don't know. I'm trying to think of a scenario How about a wedding outside what of is, the religious, outside of the religious context. Then what if you're I at a cousin's wedding
0: and their cousin's a Mormon and they bless it in the name of Joseph Smith? Would you Would you probably re- I will
1: re bless it. I will
2: write like, publicly, like Elijah, be
0: like, whichever God answers with fire, let him be true.
2: I think <laughs> there's a a, 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 the, a one of the things we got to recognize is that often marriage is a religious event, and so right. going to a wedding where that food is presented, like most Indian weddings, it is a religious event. And so, uh, yeah. how would you conduct yourself in that k- kind of environment? I, would you go to that wedding? Would you? Did your lights yourself? turn off, Miller? Eat no i don't know what happened sorry so Dude, dark, the basement really. is actually, chasing it's, him it's it's a window and, the, and it got cloudy outside <laughs>
1: um yeah so i i would actually i would drop kick the meat that's what i would do and i'm, I'm kidding so um are you guys laughing over there
0: no?
1: <laughs> okay so i i think what i would say first of all i want to answer the rest of his question he said is that considered meat sacrifice to idols Allah would be considered an idol. Any God who's not the one true God would be considered an idol. And according to 1 Corinthians 10 and Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 32, and I think Psalm 104 also, an idol is a demon. So not like the physical, um, like statue or whatever it might be, if that religion has one, that's not a demon, but whatever it is that they're worshiping, the, the God represented by that statue is itself a demon. Um, but man, I just I think First Timothy four goes a long way, Miller. Uh, you might be right on the wedding thing. I, I'd have to think about that. But First um, uh, Corinthians four goes a long way that all food is to be received with thanksgiving and prayer. Um, and, and so I think what I would say is that for for food that's been sacrificed to idols, what what Paul's picturing in First Corinthians eight is like, hey. Okay, well, you sacrifice this to an idol, but I'm going to dedicate it to Yahweh and eat it with thanksgiving to Him, and uh, and that sanctifies the food in a sense, makes it holy in that sense. So, um, anyway, I would put most things in that category.
0: Oops, I didn't unmute my mic. I don't think that the um, I don't think that there's something spiritually that's happening to you, like when you go into a temple and you're submitting to the kind of spiritual practice that's taking place there like you don't want to do that like you don't want to go into a temple and partake in the food it's like submitting yourself to the worship that's taking place there um, you know if if you if it, if, you, if you're eating food that was sa- sacrificed to an idol there's no metaphysical property to the food itself that is going to contaminate you i think that's the point in 1st corinthians chapter 8 is there's nothing like There's not like a spiritual voodoo curse that's on the food that's going to be strong enough to affect you or hurt you in any way because you're not taking it in faith. It's like I almost I almost want to compare it to the um, the way that we take the table in like a Zwinglian fashion. Like I want my faith to attach to the table because I think there's something sacramentally present. There's something spiritually present when I take the table that that's really happening. And I think that my faith actually does something in that moment. Um, my, my faith. Not, not God has attached Himself to the sacrament by the Word of God, right? That's what makes the sacrament have meaning and power, and I believe that to be true. So I'm not. I don't want to say that my faith is giving it power in a kind of word of faith sense, but I'm experiencing it by faith. That's the way I want to say it. Um, I think. Okay.
2: Uh, my, my hesitation with all of it is, I, I don't want to participate in idolatry. Yeah. And uh, I think. N- nor do I want to participate in the appearance of idolatry. And so if I'm in an environment where it is a different religion and they dedicated this food to Allah and I'm being offered that food, um, I, I'm going to probably hesitate. And I, I mean, the interesting thing, you know, it doesn't talk about, I always find this weird, it doesn't talk about vegetables. It literally just talks about meat. And the the meat, I, I assume be, probably because it has something to do with like, you know, the, the life of another in the, the blood of right? sacrifice. Yeah. But, but you can go to any one of those environments and eat vegetables that have been blessed or prayed for. Like there's, there seems to be no prohibition of those things. And so there's probably something to be gained from that or some bit of information to be gained from that as well. Uh, what do you guys hmm. think? Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah.
0: more interested in thinking that maybe that there is, it's more common for them to sacrifice. I don't know if they sacrificed at all or dedicated vegetables at all. Um, in those contexts. so i don't I don't read too much into uh, the blood or the life of the flesh that's in the blood that we see in Leviticus as much as I go. I don't think there's anything metaphysical there in the same way that Jesus says, Hey, if you eat it, it gets it's gets disposed in your stomach. nothing happens to you. It's what comes out of a man that defiles him. It's not what goes into him. I don't think there's mm-hmm. any metaphysical property to the food that's been offered up to Allah. Um, that that can affect the Christian. I do think, to, to to Miller's point, I also want to say, anytime I know this food has been dedicated to a false god, I'm not going to eat it. I'm not going to work. I'm not going to do that because I'm afraid that it would affect the conscience of those watching. And I'm not going to practice any kind of syncretism. Um, mm-hmm. But if I ingest it accidentally, it, there's nothing metaphysically that's going to happen. I, you didn't accidentally worship a false god. That's not a thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what First Corinthians eight is saying: is like, hey, if you don't know. Don't worry about it. Like, it, it can't hurt you. And you're not, you shouldn't walk around like with a, a wounded conscience. Well, for eight years I ate this food and I didn't know that Mormons are pre blessing it before I ate it. You know, like, I, I, that's not what's happening.
1: Yeah. Uh, let me read the passage from 1 Corinthians 10, the, the most relevant part, verse 14. Uh, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to it uh, as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. So that's the theme, idolatry. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So this is all a setup example for what he's going to say about idolatry. Uh, Consider the people of Israel are not they who eat eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So uh, he gives the New Testament, the New Covenant example of communion. uh, And he says that we're participating in the body and blood of Jesus. He gives the Old Testament example of sacrifices on altars and participating in the altar, and uh, and then he's and he's going to say, and then he's going to make the same point about about sacrifices made on demonic altars or altars of false gods. And he's saying, just like we participate in the body of blood in Jesus, just like Israel participated in uh, the altar of sacrifice by eating the food uh, sacrifice uh, of their sacrifices when we participate in pagan, uh, or, or when we eat food sacrificed to idols in pagan temples, uh, which that's the context he's addressing, it's part of a worship service, so to speak, uh, then we become participants with these demons. But I, I think, guys, this would be actually a good moment to to pivot and talk about communion. Uh, because in church history, these verses have been used to suggest that, I mean, it, it works with the water of baptism as well, but these verses specifically uh, used to talk about the the body and the blood of Jesus. So, uh, and maybe you guys can help me think of some examples. But uh, I, I'm thinking of like in the in the Middle Ages, if uh, whenever they stopped serving communion wine to uh, to children and to actually, or, well, they stopped serving communion to children altogether, but communion people. wine to the laity. right to lay people but the reason was wine spills easily and if you spilt some wine on your priestly robe then you were gonna have to burn the robe because the the robe was or because the wine was sacred it was the blood of jesus if you spilled it on the ground you were gonna have to lap it up and like like sip it off the floor which of course you're never gonna be able to get it perfectly all yeah if it
0: spilled you had to wash it three times drink the water that you wash it in and then burn it
1: right like it was a little bit more elaborate maybe so maybe (laughs) so uh you know this uh here's a little segment this is history of the christian church by philip schaff he uh he says if a fly or a spider was found in the wine after consecration the insect must be taken out carefully washed and burned and then the water mingled with ashes must be thrown in and must be thrown uh into the sacrary. I honestly don't even know what that is. If poison be found in the consecrated wine, the contents of the cup are to be poured out and kept in a vessel among the relics. Okay, I mean, uh, but the priest's fitness to consecrate the elements lies in his uh, sacerdotal power uh, conferred upon him at his ordination. And so there was just this uh, a great deal of superstition tied up in the priest sanctifies these elements. When he sanctifies these elements, it's true body, true blood. Uh, and, and if you spill something or if you get a fly in the wine or whatever, you can't, the laity kind of messing with that. Um, what do you guys, I mean, obviously we're Protestants, we're going to view things differently. Do you, do you guys want to just articulate, uh, maybe what you see as the error in that?
0: Leave it on Michael. See what happens.
1: Sorry. Yeah. I'm just (laughs) thinking about it.
2: Sorry. Um, so, like Josh, you you had mentioned when it came to meat sacrifice to idols, you didn't see anything metaphysical going on there, mm-hmm. and I would actually say I think there is stuff that is metaphysical going on, but I don't necessarily think that that means it's going to create harm for an individual. Um, and so, the, the question here, like in, in First Corinthians, I mean, it's it becomes a rather important one because in the next little chapter. He's going to be talking about the group that dies because of taking communion in an unworthy manner, and and it True. seems like what was happening was they were getting drunk off the Lord's supper. Now, whether the there was a consequence sort of written into the metaphysics of the wine, or whether it was the Lord Himself executing a divine uh, action in that moment in time, I, I'm not entirely clear on. So-
0: I only, want, I only want to say that when a believer is taking communion, there's no metaphysical um, properties of the idolatrously sacrificed meat that is going to condemn them in their conscience, their record before God. They're not sinning because it was done in ignorance. They don't know. Um, and there's nothing metaphysical. It's not like an open a door for a demon to attack them. They were doing it in ignorance. When I say metaphysically, I'm not saying that there's no metaphysical property to the meat whatsoever. I'm saying that the metaphysical, if there is anything metaphysical, it can't hurt the Christian if they're doing it in
2: ignorance. If they're, if they're doing it, uh, gosh, okay. Help me differentiate it. Cause some people hear, oh, so if you're sinning in ignorance, that makes it Okay.
0: No, I mean, if they're no, eating... You don't they're, mean they're, that. Don't they're mean eating that. meat. They're eating meat. If there's a greater spirit that's in them than the spirit that's in the world, they're eating meat that they don't know has been offered up to a demon. Right. Right? So if there is anything metaphysically going on, they're not syncretistically worshiping. If you start syncretistically worshiping something, like if I start worshiping, you know, the only one true God, Jesus Christ. But then I also introduce into that some like Norse mythology and I start praying to Loki on the side as well. What I'm doing is I'm syncretistically merging two religious practices together and I'm opening myself up to, hugely demonic attacks, right? So when I am a Christian and I'm eating my food and then I'm told, Hey, this food has been offered up to an idol. And I go, Oh great. Let me add it. I am now syncretistically inviting a false religion into my life. And whatever metaphysics go on with that religion that open up myself to demonic realities is present because I'm, I'm, I'm willfully practicing that religion. But if it's just eating food, you're just eating food. It's, It's something that's done in faith.
2: Now to address the question michael was asking earlier about what do we do with some of these superstitious practices that came in like where, where do we think that uh, where do we think that problem uh, why did these superstitions come about i would imagine on some level like we tend to take the sacred as less than human and so it becomes somewhat not or more than uh, human or more than human well
1: semi-divine I, I
2: yeah, I'm not, I'm not, Gnostic wouldn't be the right word. It would be the other one. Um, oh, gosh, I don't
1: know what you're trying where to say. What, where what is where Just, what is
2: natural takes on more than
1: uh, what it actually is. Uh, I mean, um, yeah. So That's Gnostic like, would say like the the natural mo- doesn't matter. Modern at all. enlightenment materialism naturalism. Right.
2: Well, it's it's almost like the like naturalism is the sacred. So yes. Um, and I think that there's a, am um, I'm, I'm I'm at a loss for words. Here you but, guys talk yeah, about it. let me fly well, my he'd
0: made, a, he'd made a statement like, hey, what do you think about this? That the phrase I've I mean, heard me say this before, but hocus pocus comes from the Latin phrase hoc es unum corpus meum. And again, I'm not I don't speak Latin, it's a dead language, right? But that phrase hocus pocus. We get from the actual pronunciation over the elements itself. So, you heard Michael just read a moment ago uh, that within the priest's ordination, they have the ontological ability to change wine and bread into blood and flesh, right? They have that ability to, by a hocus pocus, if you will, a spell, begin to change the substance, the spiritual contents of whatever is going on there to physically be something else. Um, That's where we go. That's too far, right? Christ has, by his word, mixed uh, the substance. So in the way that Christ's human flesh had divine nature attached to it, we look at real wine and real bread that has been attached Um, to the word of God in a kind of sacramental way. So the word is what is powerful. God's God said, This is my body. And it's it's his word that makes these things significant. And there's some kind of spiritual efficacy to bread and to wine, not not because of the pronunciation of some priest, but because it's been attached to the word of God. Christ's been ordained by
2: God to do so. That's right. And so that, that gives it its metaphysical properties and its significance. And, and Prior it, to yeah. the Lord ever saying that, we wouldn't have known otherwise.
1: Yeah. Well, when when we talk about like where did this sort of superstition come from, and, and Josh has been using the word syncretism, which basically means religion mixing. I, I think that's one of the reasons. I, I think that, I mean, pagan religions were insanely superstitious. I mean, you could be going up against uh you know a massive massive an army that was 10 times bigger than yours and they could see some sign in the heavens and they were going to win the battle and they would just all flee because of some random it, it was just their superstitious belief it feels to me or i mean i think that that's at least one explanation is it's like this paganism from the past just sort of in a syncretistic fashion sort of blended with uh, the practice of the Christian faith at that time. Okay, so I think that's one factor. Another factor is I think there's this uh, inherent religious feeling when we can uh, separate between the clean and the unclean, uh, the priest and everybody else, the laity, uh, the and you have the temple and the furnishings and all this. I mean, that was an old covenant structure. But then the Roman Catholic church started applying it to our new covenant practice, separating the priest from the laity, uh, you know, I mean, with the, as far as temple is concerned, church was basically like a temple and the, and the priest was, uh, I mean, the Eucharist was envisioned as, uh, is not, not him like serving the people. It was, it was more like a sacrifice before God. And, uh, and so, he, he was like this true, like instead of Jesus being the mediator between God and man, it was like the priest in a way was a mediator between God and man. And so I, I think that there's a sense in, in which religion in the negative sense of the word sort of uh, crept in as well. And so I think there's superstition. I think there's the bad sense of that word religion creeping in uh, and, and going back to forms and shadows instead of the substance, which is Christ. And then, uh, like a lot of things, I think a lot of it came back to money, uh, because during the crusades, people, people were headed East and they were, uh, going into the Holy Land and they were invading these, uh, these other places and they would bring back these relics. And to be quite honest, it paid really well. And so you just bring back a piece of wood. In fact, they brought back, and maybe we can talk about Christian relics a little bit. They brought back so many relics of the cross of jesus that it became unbelievable to everybody that all of these could have uh belonged to the same cross and so they they made up a new story and that is that the cross of jesus is so powerful that it just multiplies throughout history and so there's this sort of infinite supply of cross of jesus wood that is going around uh but but there was money in it is my point. There was money for those who were taking the relics. There was money. And then they were selling it to sort of a a middleman dealers and selling it to somebody else. There was a lot of money in it. So it was very lucrative. So I think there are a lot of reasons why, uh, why there was so much superstition.
0: Yeah. And Dustin caught me. He, He, he said, Hey, you unintentional mistake. You said mixed or attached, Saying that I made a Christological error. Yes, I mean that Christ being God assumed human flesh, right? We'll we'll just use the the most creedal language in talking about this. All I mean is that it seems as if there was a spiritual reality in the same way that the the, the oh, divine became incarnate, became created, the uncreated took on creation. I'm saying in the same way that the the table itself has this kind of spiritual Thing and attached or mixed might not be the right word because again, trying to avoid this Christological heresy is good catch, so Dustin. gracious
1: response by Dustin. Yeah, he's, me, he's
0: always looking out for us. <laughs>
2: let me jump in here. When we talked about where some of this stuff comes from, something that I feel like you know we could all relate to, and I remember Michael when you and I started doing ministry together early on. I remember having these kinds of conversations where we talked about the tendency within um, religion of any kind, uh, but but our own. Uh where we tend to deify things that were actually quite normal or spiritualize things that are actually quite natural. And so I, I remember us, you know, being young 20 somethings and joking around about the idea, did Jesus ever pass gas? And uh, you know, and of course that's the, the young kind of teenage boy thing to do is to turn that into a joke. But right but next to did
0: Adam have a belly button.
2: Right, right. But the point I'm trying to make in this is I think what happens when we start having things that are sacred, things that have been uh, recognized by Jesus as, uh, as sacred, that we can then in that moment take it further than, when even, than what Jesus even intended. And we do that by sort of deifying the object or removing what is natural from it um, in our own mm-hmm. language, in our own practice. And, and I think we've done this with the Lord as well. Like the idea that the Lord uh, had, had to nurse, the idea that the Lord would would digest food, um, that he had to use the restroom restroom and relieve himself, like those kind of things, we we don't even want to think about because this is the sacred. But to do so is also to remove what is truly incarnational about the Lord, that he really was like us. Amen. Um, mm-hmm. And Amen. I think I think that's what's happening with these objects as well.
1: Yeah. Well, and there was also this sense that the the relics actually helped make you more holy. Um, so there's a story told Less about human. Bernard, right? And uh, there's a story told about Bernard and um, the what I was reading again. This is Peter Schaff. He didn't say that it was Bernard of Clairvaux. He just said it was a certain Bernard. So I don't know which Bernard this was, but uh, he had a relic belonging to both Peter and Paul and the story is told that he's walking along and he has a lustful thought enter into his mind and peter and paul their spirits i suppose begin punching his sides and so he realizes he's having lustful thoughts and he stops he halts them continues to walk and peter and paul are okay with him now but then the thoughts creep back in and so same thing again he gets punched in his sides now this is the most ridiculous story I've ever heard in my life. I usually life. don't
0: have to have an apostle <laughs> strike me for me to realize I'm having a lustful thought.
1: I don't know. Well, usually that's the key word, Josh. You should try it. <laughs> so, uh, but you see, this actually—the relics were were part of what made Bernard more holy. I mean, you imagine t- him telling this story around the campfire, like, "Wow. Okay. Well." Man, I wish I had one of those relics so I could walk in such moral purity like Bernard. So I, I think there was also uh, that element as well.
0: Well, man, there, there. So now we're talking kind of about like Roman Catholic religious icons and images and those kinds of things
1: and the role. Dude, I, I got to read you this list of Roman Catholic. Oh well, icons. Okay, before we switch to icons, can I switch to this list of uh, relics? Relics. Oh yeah, yes, do it. Yeah. This is page 846 of, I think it was volume five of Peter Schaff's, uh work on church history. <laughs> I, I um, have a follow-up question to this list, okay? Okay. Go so uh, we have Noah's beards. Beards. <laughs> he only had one beard, okay? But guys, I guess that answers the question about, are beards sacred objects? Maybe so. Oh, uh, Peter Noah's Schaff. beard, the the horns of Moses. The stone on which Jacob slept at Bethel, the branch from which Absalom hung, our Lord's, I almost, our Lord's foreskin. He was his a Jew. Navel, it, Yeah, he was a Jew. Uh, his navel cord, so umbilical cord. Uh, moms his, didn't collect
0: that like teeth. You know, like moms today, they collect teeth. That's probably not a thing that Jewish moms did back in the day, I would Wait, imagine.
2: your mom collected your teeth?
0: Yeah, I mean, you ever you ever did that like... I mean, I don't know that my mom did, but I know of moms who did. But I think my mom's got like <laughs> my mom my kept hairs. one of those.
1: So you we know, have like, Josh we, relics. Are there yeah, any there Josh relics?
0: There are relics of Josh. Us, like I think with, the first time they, they come my, my mom might have They that, would make us maybe. more.
1: <laughs> did you have gray hair when you were born, Josh?
0: I don't want to talk about it, Michael. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right. So uh, the tears that Jesus uh, shed at the grave of Lazarus, milk from Mary's breasts, the table on which the Last Supper was eaten, the stone of Christ's sepulture, uh, Paul's stake in the flesh, so the thorn in the flesh, tooth belonging to Saint Lawrence. I mean, how does that one make the list? Tooth belonging to Saint Lawrence. I can do without that. If I have Christ's tooth, which is next in the list, but apparently Christ Christ's tooth was in possession of a certain monk, and then another Christian, uh, another ch- Christian attached or attacked that monk's monastery. Because he said, there's no way the resurrected Christ was missing any of his body parts. So if you claim to have one of his teeth, you're a liar. So he uh, attacked the monastery. And apparently the same thing happened on account of Christ's umbilical cord. Um, man, there's more. But it's it's just insane. Um, yeah, Miller, you were about to, you had a follow-up. I don't know if you were going to comment on that if you had a follow-up question. Oh, the Hi. devil's claws. That was one. The devil's claws.
2: Yeah, my, so. my question has more to do with, and I'm, I don't know if you guys actually know the answer to this or not, maybe somebody in our audience does, but uh, how does the Catholic Church respond to some of this today, knowing that, that there was so much um, money and finances fueling this sort of ambition, um, but also like the idea that Moses had horns, something that, that cropped up in medieval times that we would, I think most Catholics today would dismiss. Um what do they do with with a lot of this, and how do they respond to it today?
0: Well, I I can know again, thirty thousand foot. I'm not I'm not an expert in Catholic theology. I know that the the Seventh Ecumenical Council endorses the use of iconography and places some kind of limitations on what icons are acceptable, what kind of veneration of the saints are acceptable. Um, when we use the word veneration, we typically think of the word worship, but often when it's connection to saints. It's the same kind of veneration that you would honor your father and mother, that you would honor the king or, you know, the emperor who's got charge over you, that kind of thing. It would be it would be that kind of veneration, not the kind of worship given to God and God alone. So um, there are limitations placed on the Seventh Ecumenical Council that people can go check out Um I know John of Damascus during the iconoclast controversy of the 7th and 8th century um, spoke and wrote a lot into this. We have episodes entirely documenting some of this stuff um, on the Back to the Father series where we talked about icons and then also getting ghosty with Augustine, right? So some of those stories are shared in those videos if you guys want to go check that out. Now, I think, though, that if you were to talk to a Roman Catholic today, they would admit that the... um, there were abuses that took place. I think in the same way that if you talk to a charismatic today, most charismatics would admit, hey, there have been charismatic abuses, and we need to not do that. But that's not to invalidate the, the idea that God is actually performing miracles today. Just because someone pushed someone over in a prayer line doesn't mean people don't actually fall. Or just because mm-hmm. someone pulled someone's leg doesn't yeah. mean people's legs don't grow. Yeah, I, They would probably that's... handle it like that.
1: Yeah, I think that's true, Josh, because the um, I I know, you know, back in the Middle Ages, there was this, you know, very lucrative relic business going on. Uh, Not so in the Roman Catholic Church today, but they haven't repudiated relics like they still have relics. I'm sure they probably don't claim even claim to have the foreskin of Jesus anymore. But I do know they, they, they have relics and they preserve them. And so oh, I've locations. seen these relics. I've, oh, I've I, been there.
0: I think the trout, the shroud of turns probably legit personally.
1: Right. <laughs> well, I've, uh, seen I've, episode, I've seen St.
2: Peter's cathedral. I've, I've seen the, the tomb. I've seen the skull of James, the lesser in, uh, in Venice. Um, so I have actually visited some of these sites uh, just because I was curious about it and wanted to know what this was all about, I, I think there is a biblical precedent for um, uh, maintaining or keeping um, these kind of
1: things. Uh, now, what what kind of meaning we can attach to what, them? What, is what, would, where, what would be what would be the biblical precedent for keeping a relic? Uh,
2: the fact that they would keep the bones of certain patriarchs and take them with them.
1: Instead of just being yeah, buried th- somewhere. Yeah, I disagree yeah, with that. Because... I, I would disagree with that. I don't think they're viewing like I don't I don't think Jacob's bones when he when he died in Egypt were viewed as a relic. It, it was, okay, we're gonna take my father back to the promised land because he belongs in the promised land. And Joseph too wanted to be buried in all the patriarchs wanted to be buried in the promised land because that was their land. And uh, it wasn't like you know I think for us in 21st yeah. century America you know we I mean cremation I think is more more popular these days than burial mostly for economic reasons throughout church history cremation was uh, was forbidden because the body is a temple and this was seen as uh, as sacred and we and it was a it was sort of an act of faith in future resurrection. Uh well, and, I and I, so, I think
2: you you might have misunderstood me because I I didn't finish my statement. I said okay. what meaning you attach to these things I might disagree with. Um now now having and maintaining those things I don't necessarily think that that's a problem. So again it's it's not so much the having of a relic or a preser- preservation of a relic but the problem would be in the meaning you attach to it. Does that make sense?
0: E- e- yes. So I, yeah. Even I mean, in even in saying sure. relic, though, I think that relics are. This is this is the way that I'll say that. Like with icons and things like this, I think that they need to be ordained, right? Like I have no problem with a serpent staff that God told them to make, right? God says, "Don't make great images." When you say ordained,
1: you're saying by God, prescribed, not not a church, because. I mean the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages was ordaining the foreskin of Jesus and saying the supposed right. foreskin of Jesus and saying this is a relic. You don't mean ordain like that. No. You mean by God and really I think you mean by God in scripture.
0: Prescribed. Yeah. And so so it, it, there there becomes these lines of again iconography that I'm I'm comfortable with some things, right? Like I'm I like the way that the Eastern Orthodox do iconography. I'm more uncomfortable with the way that the West is iconography. So like, if you look, if you just type in iconography or ancient iconography and you see kind of like cartoony, flat Stanley depictions of Jesus and the apostles, I've got no problem with that. And the reason being is no one believes that Jesus and the apostles looked like that, right? No one believes that there's going to be flat Stanley sitting on the throne. Um, we, we believe that that image represents the God in heaven. And it's kind of like a mental placeholder it's the hyper realism that i get really uncomfortable with it's it's the hey this boy traveled to heaven and this like blonde hair blue eyed jesus you know that was painted by this great artist that i go i don't know because i would really be um cautious of looking at an embodied human like like let's say michael roundtree was able to grow a really big beard Right. And I was able to take a photo of him and I was able to go, you know, bring it to some ancient Aborigines tribe and like, look, guys, look at this. Michael's got this beard. This is actually Jesus. Look at this picture of Jesus. He's humanoid. Jesus was a human. But now I'm pointing them to the image of a human man that is not God and that is not divine and telling them that this is the image of the, the God-man. I, I'm, I'm less comfortable with that kind of representation, whereas this thing is meant to represent another thing. The snake was meant to represent the cross, right? Like we see this thing lifted up. It's not the cross, but it represents. It's a it's a shadow. It's a depiction, if you will. And, and I think that the Eastern way of representing icons is probably more tasteful. Um, John of Damascus, though, He made certain statements about iconography. We can draw Jesus in a kind of humanoid fashion, right? We can, we can not just the Protestant lamb and, and flag, right? Um, We, he said, Hey, we can depict him as human because the Bible depicts him as human. And when we read the scriptures and we see that Jesus is truly human, there's an embodied image in our mind and in our heart that we take on when we're reading the passage, when we're living through the narrative of the scriptures we see that humanity of Jesus. So if the scriptures depict him in human, why can't we depict him in human is what uh, John of Damascus would say. Let me finish Um, these two other thoughts, Michael. He also says that there's an honor of the image is going to the thing that it images, not the image itself, right? So if I I have a, a picture of my daughter, And I, you know, kiss it before I go to bed or, you know, someone loses a child and they, they hold a teddy bear of their child, right, that they loved, you know, they're not, they're not worshiping the teddy bear. They're not worshiping the photo. They're actually bringing the memory of the thing that that represents to them. John of Damascus would say the same thing of a cross or a crucifix or those kinds of things. It's giving honor not to the object, but to the thing that the object represents. And then finally, he says, hey, look, there's also a kind of distinction between, again, veneration, honoring father and mother, and the kind of veneration that goes to God and God alone. So he'll, he'll make separate categories for those things. We can remember the great men and women of God that have gone before. You can have a, a, a Spurgeon bobblehead behind you and use it to remember a great man of faith and what God did through him, but, but you shouldn't go to that in worship. So that that's John of Damascus.
1: Okay uh, so I, I want to read for me, uh for you guys a quote from uh, Dr. Peter Lighthart. We had him on the show uh, I don't know a couple of years ago uh, love dr lighthart um, he ha- he wrote a book on the Ten Commandments and this is what he has to say about the second word the second commandment of uh, of no graven images okay and, and I want to uh, Miller josh I want to ask you guys, what relevance does this have to our conversation about icons, if any? Uh, and do you agree or disagree? So he says, the second word is founded on a contrast between sight and hearing. That contrast is evident everywhere. When Yahweh tells Moses to carve a new set of tablets to replace the ones he broke, he uses the verb form of the word for graven image, Exodus 34, one. He tells him to grave a set of tablets. But the tablets don't contain pictures the tablets are full of words yahweh speaks yahweh declares yahweh commands yahweh writes on tablets but he does not show himself he is the unseen god who speaks god is word that helps us see the depth of the second word it's prohibiting liturgical idolatry using images and icons to commune with god more generally it warns us against putting images at the center of life warning us to instead put word at the center of life the second word teaches us that we live by hearing and not by sight in Scripture, eyes are the organs of judgment. God sees and judges the, that the creation is good. Adam and Eve eat the tree of knowledge and good. Uh, tree of knowledge and their eyes are opened. With our eyes, we scrutinize and judge. We are over the things we see in command and in control. This is one of the deep reasons we don't worship God through images. He is not in our control. We do not judge Him, but He us. So, what thinkest thou?
0: Amen. I emailed Peter. Yeah, he said he's too busy to come back on the show. That's what I think of it. <laughs> Peter, come back on the show. We miss yeah. you.
2: I, I appreciate it quite a bit. I think the uh, it, it points points to the very thing I was kind of saying earlier is we have this propensity and tendency to take an object and make it into some, to make it into something more than what it actually is, and so that prohibition of, of creating an image is actually for our own good. Because we're so prone to idolatry.
0: I think we're prone to idolatry, but I also think that we we have to concede the ground that God is able to use whatever means he chooses to administer miraculous signs and wonders amongst his people. And I and I do, man. I'm I'm more open to looking at the claims throughout history of miracles taking place at specific you know, icons and shrines and memorials for whatever saint, like there's a story of Augustine, right? Um, you know, in the city of God. Yeah. So you've got the Elijah's bone story, but like in, in, in Augustine talks about in, in the city of God, he's got these two twins, their mother cursed them, you know, and they had this, you know, Parkinson's epilepsy, epilepsy of some kind, like they just shook constantly. Um, We don't know what it's called because there's no medical documentation of what it would have been. And they're at a in the middle of a sermon. I think they're kneeling down at uh, some kind of uh, icon of St. Stephen. And as they're as I again reading the story, the way that I'm understanding it is as they are remembering how God used this man and might even be asking that man to pray for them in heaven, like, hey, go ask God to you know, to heal me, um, they receive healing. And I, and I look at those moments and I go, I'm not going to say that that didn't happen because it doesn't fit within the orthopraxy. I think it's like we shouldn't do it. I don't think because some saint that happened, and I actually think it happened, that we should make a normative, any more than we should you know, throw mud into people's eyes like we've talked about in former episodes. Um, I now don't we're not think we collecting should, mud are we yeah yeah exactly like I don't think we should make normative practices of this but if I open up a book you know and I'm I'm reading stories about you know Evan Roberts or I'm reading stories about Azusa Street and I'm reading that, that it's called they told me their stories in Azusa Street and the stories of like tumors falling off of people's bodies that they're sweeping up into dustpans and I'm reading that and I'm thinking about that and my faith is stirred and then God supernaturally heals me through that event, I'm not going to be like, I'm not going to not believe that that happened because someone was dwelling on a saint when the miracle took place. Because it seems even if, even in the story of St. Stephen and the way that Augustine talks about us connecting to those icons is that we look at those things to remind us of what God did. So again, we're not going to them as a mediator um, in any more than I would read a book of Azusa Street and go, you know... William Seymour, pray for me. I, I'm not doing that. But I ain't going to remember what God did through Seymour. And I think it's possible that God would heal someone through that. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I, I don't think that there's we need a, to throw out icons with the bathwater, if you will.
2: There's a, um, a book written by uh, Professor Ronald, let me just pull it up, Dr. Ronald Kidd. He wrote a book called Healing Through the Centuries. And in one chapter in that book, he deals with uh, healings that are pretty well documented. But that took place through some sort of uh, location or relic, um, and again, this is a Pentecostal professor, so I, I think it's it's worth checking out and looking into. And I don't really know what to do with it, honestly.
1: Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think that's. I, I think the big takeaway, because <laughs> I mean, Josh put the camera on me, so I'll talk. So, uh, a number of people, several people in the chat, uh, two things that I saw coming up a lot. One was anointing oil and one was the bronze serpent. Okay. So to talk about each of those in turn, it's going to, I think they're both going to drive toward uh, a point of, we don't want to make too much of any object ever. The only thing we want to really, really make much of is we want to make much of God. We want to make much of the triune God, father, son, and spirit. And, uh, and if it becomes about the object, then we've gone astray. Um, so to start with anointing oil, josh this is what you were talking about with ordination like god commanded this this is why we do it and uh and this is why we don't just choose random like i'm just going to choose some random relic and use it for healing i mean if, if the holy spirit leads in any given circumstance that's that's one thing but to to make this a normative practice no what's normative is what's commanded in the scripture and anointing oil is commanded in the scripture i encourage you guys to go back and watch our. Episode on anointing oil, and uh, and what makes it powerful is not the substance itself. It's not like oh well, this oil is made out of some kind of healing property. No, it's the power of the Holy Spirit. The oil acts as this sort of sacramental agent, uh, a means of grace. Uh, but the but the power is actually in in faith, or more perfectly, the, the power is in God, and faith attaches to God by means of the oil that God prescribed. God ordained so so that's one but we don't want to make too much of the oil as though the the oil is magical and i can just slap it on anybody and there's just intrinsic healing powers inside of it no there's not that uh now let's talk about the bronze serpent um and i think last year or last week actually misquoted i think i said it was from gideon and it's uh from uh hezekiah if i can pull this up, this would be first first second kings 18. Hezekiah did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. He also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it. And it was called uh, the Neheshtan. So they had a name for it, Neheshtun. And um, so they're actually burning incense to it. So they've they've turned this thing into a God. So God is not opposed to using objects for his own sovereign purposes, and he sometimes will, like he did in the bron- with the bronze serpent, when in the book of Numbers, he told the Israelites to lift up the bronze serpent, and when you look to it, you'll be healed. But they held on to that bronze serpent, and then they turned it into an idol. And so I think that would be my biggest takeaway, is whether it be with anointing oil, which was Prescribed by God, whether it be with the bronze serpent, which at one point was prescribed by God, that bronze serpent was better off destroyed once people started worshiping it. And any of these relics that people are going after and worshiping and thinking that they're going to become more holy, those relics, I don't care how supposedly holy it is. If it's if it's deceiving people and leading people astray, I would rather it be ground Agreed. into powder than it continue in existence. Don't make much of things. Make much of God who created all things. There's my takeaway.
0: No, and I, I think that's o'clock. right. I think I think we need to be aware of church history when we talk about that kind of class controversy the kind of relic abuses that we saw during the Protestant Reformation were taking place during the Iconoclast controversy. So there were these wild abuses that were taking place. And I think um, in the same way that Michael talked about that youth group kid of how close can I walk to the line without committing sexual immorality, um, that just kind of exposes our heart towards the issue. I think as Christians, we shouldn't be saying how close to sin can I get without becoming a sinner. We should be saying, well, how closely can I abstain from sin? Right? Like how holy can I live? And and I do think that the same thing can be said when it comes to graven images. We don't we don't want to get as close to it as we can without crossing that line. I think we need to we need to tread on holy g- ground and be careful that we don't violate sacred scripture that commands us not to worship idols and graven images. So. Uh, Miller, do you have any thoughts there, closing thoughts before we wrap up?
2: No, I, I thought Michael wrapped it up beautifully. I, I really love what he said there at the end.
0: Wonderful, cool guys! Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Remnant Radio. Uh, it was a great program. Uh, if you really were blessed by the program, man, uh, there's links in the description. You can give. You can give a one time gift on PayPal, or you become a recurring giver on Patreon. As well as five bucks a month, you can get access to extra content there on Patreon. We're doing Screw Tape Letters there on uh, Zoom, so just jump on there. Uh, you get a link every week, and we cover a couple different uh, letters in the Screw Tape Letters. It's a uh, Great time to hang out, ask good questions, uh, have good conversations. So if that's something that interests you, uh, there are links in the description for both PayPal or Patreon. Blessings, guys, and we'll see you next Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday from four to five PM Central Standard Time. We got a lot of bookings coming up. We got Carmen Ims is coming on the show. Anthony Scuma is coming back on the show. Uh, Dustin uh, just came uh, on yesterday. We filmed an episode on apologetics. Uh, uh, Dr. Michael Brown's coming back. Tons of people who uh, we just reached out to got a bunch of bookings. So a lot of cool things to be looking forward to blessings guys we'll see you next week want to thank kairos classrooms for sponsoring this episode of remnant radio and if you're out there